Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to this episode of Finnerin's Wake. I am, with unremitting commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finnerin. Thank you so very much, everyone, for joining me today. Uh, if you find these conversations enlightening, entertaining, stimulating to the mind or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this humble little channel of mine. Uh, your patronage would be more than welcome as we continue to grow this small but happy community of conversationalists. Uh, now, if you're interested in content specific to wellness, literature, philosophy, sleep, meditation, mindfulness, please do consider checking out my sister project, Numa by Daniel Finneran. It's in podcast and YouTube form, and uh, I'll include a link to that in the show notes below. Uh, today, I'm very pleased to be joined by my friend and fellow Floridian, Scott Schelke. A quick biographical sketch to introduce you to him. Born in California, Scott spent his early childhood abroad in Germany before settling in Florida in 1979, in which for nearly a decade he's resided. I'm sorry, nearly a decade, nearly a half century he's resided. After about four decades in the property management business, Scott shifted gears, so to speak, and became a photographer, a professional photographer, but not your average professional photographer, snapping photos of cats and weddings and sunsets. He turned his attention and his professional expertise to automobile racing, NASCAR racing, extreme weather events like tornadoes, twisters, lightning storms, and hurricanes. And if those weren't sufficient to stir the adrenaline in and through his veins, rocket launches. In the past six years, Scott has photographed 167 rocket launches for NASA, SpaceX, and ULA, which is the United Launch Alliance. Scott, thank you so very much for doing me the honor of joining me on my little show. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's an absolute pleasure, and I can't wait to learn about all of your expertise in this field and all the experiences that you've had shooting these wonderful events and people. Uh, but the first person to whom we should turn and on whom we should focus is you. I'd like to know a little bit more about your upbringing. I understand that your father was in the Air Force. Is that correct? That is correct. And he was stationed, again, as I said, in, in Germany and probably other places as well. And he seems to have been one of the influences, maybe the chief influence on you as it pertains to your fascination in, in missiles and rockets and fast things. So can you tell me a little bit more about that relationship you had with your father and how his profession instilled in you a passion for your current profession? Absolutely. I would love to. In fact, uh, as a young boy, we were stationed in, in six different places, three locations, um, you know, California, Mojave Desert, Bitburg, Germ Bitburg, Germany, and then Orlando, Florida. All of those were twice, uh, you know, we were stationed there twice. So kind of rare because normally you're moving every three to four, four years. But when my father uh, got involved with missiles and became a, a, a commander of a missile squadron, uh, he would bring home these glossy photos from California from when they were testing the MACE, the Matador, 
and these were rockets launched kind of semi-horizontally on a skid and uh, would bring home these black and white glossy photos. And they were at that instant part of ignition to the beginning of liftoff. And they were sliding off of this angular um, skid and it was captivating. And I was only six or seven, but the, because the background was pure dark, it was mostly night when they were doing this. Um, it just, it jumped out, this image jumped out at you. So that started it, but what solidified it was being uh, stationed in Germany, Pittsburgh, Germany, during Apollo 11 in 1969 and watching the moon walk and the moon landing on a little black and white TV with my father. And that just cemented down the road when I could finally not worry about family and bills and mortgages and things like that and my responsibility of having a family. I could take off and try to follow my own dreams at a later age. Was your primary interest in the photograph or was it in the subject of the photograph? For it, in, other, in other words, yeah. What, I mean, was it the, the new, maybe not altogether new medium that you were being exposed to, um, but the actual practice of taking a photograph of these extraordinary things, these devices, these missiles, or was it the missile itself that really compelled you? A very good question. And it actually is the capturing of that moment, that photograph, that image, uh, the struggle to get it, uh, fighting light, dew, rain, um, angles, um, being blocked by certain things that are out of your control. Um, and time is also sometimes very critical to what we do out there because the cameras are sitting out there for three, four, five days, and you have no access to them. But the capturing of that moment, uh, that is important. When that photograph, when you're scrolling, in today's age, we're scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. When you stop and start looking at a photo, that got you. It, it is what caught your eye. Why are you stopping in your busy life and studying that one image? That's the moment I try to, to capture. Do you fear as though children today, given the deluge of images that they come across on their screens almost every hour, every waking hour, do you fear that children today don't or aren't able to have that really life-altering experience that you and your father underwent when you saw that image uh, so many years ago, because there's such an inundation of images all around us, you know, on our computers, on our iPhones, on the televisions that we watch every single day, that we almost become a little bit desensitized to a, to a truly extraordinary image. And we also don't have that tangibility. We don't have the ability now, we do, but we don't do it, to hold, you know, a, a Kodak film and actually look at an image the way you did when you were young. So do you think that you know, great images like this are still as impressive today as they were back when you were younger, when they weren't so ubiquitous? Probably not. Uh, it was a different time when you could hold uh, a printed photo, like you said, and really study it and, and, and stay with it. Um, so no, it's, it's different now with selfies and selfie sticks, and it's all about me and maybe what I'm doing and what's behind me. That's kind of the, what the generation is, the new generation seems to be 
more involved in. However, though, there is a caveat and there is a select group um, and, and they are quite young. And, and what turned my life around was a 15 year old photographer. And we'll get into that down the road, but, but there is a group of young beginning photographers who are taking this to a whole nother level now and they are amazing. They understand technology. They understand the advances that have happened with cameras and sensors and, and lenses. And they are incredible at a, such an early age, what they're accomplishing. So there's a group out there that is going to, I hope, keep this alive about the power of an image and how that one image can speak to you. But for me, one image changed my life. That's extraordinary. Do you still have that image framed somewhere, perhaps, in your house? Unfortunately, I do not. My brother, when my when, when my parents died, my brother took that. So, unfortunately, I don't have that. I wish I did. That would mean a lot. Yeah, yeah. And just because it's endured so long with you and has been such a foundational component to your to your life, to your artistic life, you mentioned that that group of youngsters by whom you were so deeply impressed impressed. So as not to forget it, why don't we address that now? Uh, exactly what happened? Who is this this unnamed 15-year-old uh, young man? Maybe he's a man by now. And and uh, why was he so inspirational to you? I, I would love to, because not only was he totally inspiring and, and, flip, and helped me to flip my life upside down, at this young age of 15, he wasn't even able to drive on base. His parents had to drive him into base when he started. But his beginning photographs of these liftoffs, these rocket launches at Cape Canaveral, and I'm 62 years old, getting ready to retire, and this is my chance. This is my time to take early retirement and finally, for the first time, really go out and chase one of my dreams. Um, and it was John Krause. He's now 21. Uh, I've been friends with him for over five years now because it took me about a year to break in. But what he has accomplished from 15 to 21 is incredible. And without a doubt, he and Ben Cooper, who's in his 30s, he's also a very young man, started when he was in his 20s. He is the primary photographer for uh, SpaceX and has tremendous access with NASA. So he gets onto sections of the launch pad that we will never see as media. So his angles are just stunning. But John Krause is part of our, of our, our group, our media colleague. And what he can do in the same boundaries of 50 feet or 50 yards from the rocket is truly inspiring. And he has been remarkable. So that's John Krause, K-R-A, U.S. He's incredible. And now he's become a mentor of mine as we're shooting side by side. That's fascinating. So John Krauss is the, the wunderkind by whom yes. you were inspired and, and led into this. this and, that's the, and a lot of people call him that. <laughs> Krauss the wunderkind. Yeah. And it seems to be fitting. And what yes. is your nickname in the, in the industry? Oh, I don't think I have one. I don't think I've reached that level yet, but I am striving. I, I am striving. So there's something extraordinary about your transition, as you said, from a man on the very precipice of retirement <laughs> uh, after having been in property management and real estate for four decades, well, nigh four decades, uh, and then transitioning into a field that is absolutely 
you know, unexpected, I would think, uh, at least for those who might not have known you and your passions and your hobbies. So did you, for the duration of those years, for those decades, did you harbor a passion for photography? Were you, were you honing your skills at that time? Were you experimenting with different lenses and different, different bodies and different cameras? Or, or were you always just sort of dreamily thinking about it, but not really taking any action, even in those days when, you know, professional action really wasn't a choice? Another very well thought out question by you. Uh, no, I was honing my skills, but still didn't have that direction yet on the rocket launches at Cape Canaveral, Wallops Island, Virginia, or Boca Chica, Texas, but it was racing. And that, those were the two things my parents started me out on is my first race they took me to in 1970 at the 24 hours of Daytona. And that's where I fell in love with the challenge of automobile racing and how that driver becomes one with the car and then becomes one with the track. And then trying to capture those moments as they're entering the apex of the turn, they're on three wheels, they're sliding, spinning, on fire, uh, getting out of the car on pit road, uh, gassing up, all of that. So I started uh, doing film photography on, on my own in 1971. So I was about 15, 16, same age as John Krause. And I continued that all the way to six years ago when I did switch over to uh, rocket launch photography. But what, so there was a lot of practice there. It, they don't transfer that, that type of skill set doesn't easily transfer from racing to rockets. The speeds are just incredibly different. 17,000 miles an hour to 24,000 miles an hour for a lunar orbit to, so there's, there's just so many differences. But the thing about photography is if you take a shot and you're not happy with it, that car comes back around, unless it wrecks, that car comes back around in another lap and you can shoot it again and you can fix your issue. But in rocket launch photography, you get one shot, can't practice this, can't go anywhere and practice on the rocket launch. You have to go and do it and fail and learn and maybe fail again, which I did and learn. And it takes, it's a process. And very rarely do you ever walk out, shoot your first launch and you have a killer image. And there's, it's a process for which I don't imagine there's a very clear blueprint. For instance, you know, you can walk into certain industries, certain fields of work, and know with some certainty exactly how to proceed. Uh, but rocket launching seems to have a lot of um, unpredictable qualities to it. <laughs> like you mentioned some of the speeds at which these, these launches are occurring. Obviously, there's no set guidebook to which you can refer to enable you to, to prepare for this. So I would assume that you're reliant both on your own wits and those of a small sort of coterie of photographers who surround you. And, and it, it seems to be a welcoming group of people, but you know, it also is business and you're probably vying for certain positions and, and publications and, and other things like that. So tell me, what was the learning curve like transitioning from automobile uh, photography and storm photography into rocket photography? How did you educate yourself on this, on this new venture? Well, six years ago, you could access Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but rarely did a photographer ever have their settings with the picture that they were publishing. So it was, it was um, kept close to the vest. And until you break in, until they become your friend, as you, well, as you said, they are very welcoming, so much different than automobile racing. 
Automobile racing is very cutthroat. Uh, the wires are fighting against the wires and you, they want that front page photo. And they, they most of the time will not help you. But out at Cape Canaveral, it's a whole different camaraderie, something that I just fell in love with immediately. And they welcome you in uh, right from the beginning. And if you ask them, they will help you. They will give you basic settings. You'll have to refine it from there, but they actually will help you. And very rarely will someone not um, uh, reach out and give a give an answer to a question from a new a new person who's just trying to break in. So in the beginning, hard to find those settings till you started to get to know the photographers. I will say there's been a shift and a change. And now when you go on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, you'll actually see some of their settings. They'll actually print that out in the description of the photo and what was occurring and the settings will be there. Now that doesn't mean it's gonna be an instant success for you because cameras are different, sensors are different, brands are different and the climate, the situation that you're in, the atmospheric climate that you're in can still blow the photo out. But these rockets are so bright, they turn night into day and fighting that and learning how to control that. And as you know, photography is the capturing of light. It says radiant energy in the, in the, in the description, but, um, but it is the capturing of light and how you do that. And rockets are some of the brightest items they're almost as bright as the sun. Um, so it can be incredibly difficult, especially at night. Yeah. Yeah. One can imagine trying to manipulate those settings. I know uh, occasionally when I'm, when I work with my father, who is an amateur photographer, you know, that's, that's always the, the most frustrating part doing outdoor photography and trying to set up the, the bounces and the, the other reflection <laughs> devices that we have some sundry devices that we have stored in the garage and, you know, it's it's so difficult to to nail that down. And I think, or I know that a lot of lay photographers, as we've all become with our devices, don't appreciate the difficulty of 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 light and how to how to manipulate it to your to your needs, because we can just pull out our phone and everything is sort of automated, and you just point and click, and there you go, you have a perfect portrait. But uh, truly, to do it as a work of art requires, like you said, a vast amount of experience knowing, okay, the ISO and the aperture and all these sorts of fancy things, but also sort of an intuition of where to stand and how to position yourself. Now, have you found yourself in the position of offering advice? You said that you were often the recipient of this, you know, at the outset of your, of your photography career in the realm of, of rocket launching, but have you had that gratifying experience of being able to to offer some advice to maybe a young up-and-comer who's also pursuing a photography in that field? You know, the first couple of years, um, nobody ever came and asked me anything because I really was learning and it was, it was difficult. I will tell you, it was the most challenging thing I have ever done in my life, in my 68 years, including the 42 years in condos. This has been the most incredible uh, and difficult endeavor and but but challenging and rewarding and so worthwhile but in those first three years unless it was a brand new team member the few teams that i shot on and um, had the pleasure to be with then those new team members yes you instantly have to start helping them out because they're lost they were they were just like i was when i first showed up deer staring in the headlights and you think you have an idea or a baseline but you definitely are going to need help 
Um, but now in these last three years, yes, it has been remarkable where John Krause has come and has now given me advice, shoulder to shoulder. He says, what are you doing? What are your thoughts? Now, have you thought this out? What about this? What about that? And he's giving me alternatives. And it's just so cool where he was um, a hero and inspiring and, and helped me to, to change my life. And now he's, we're working side by side and he's actually still helping me to grow and to even to get better. I have now had that where now people are coming to me and, and some of that is your size of the social platform. They now are starting to recognize that you are starting to make a mark. You are starting to catch some of those iconic photos and they do, they start coming to you. And I have to tell you, it is gratifying and it is a responsibility because we have to continue this. Um, we have to help. And that's the whole thing. It's not about what you have done. It's who have you helped? And I think that's important in life. I think it's important in work and in your family. And I, and I feel goosebumps right now in just saying this to you on camera, but it is who have you helped? It's not about what have you done. That's a beautiful response to that question. And I too share in, in feeling those goosebumps raised on my skin. Uh, at the earliest stages though, before you could even imagine a response like that and feeling the sensation of those goosebumps jump up from your skin, were you ever dissuaded from continuing on? You spoke of the difficulty at the outset and one could imagine at the age of 62, feeling like this is an endeavor unworthy of your, your diligence, unworthy of your time and effort, especially because of how humbling it can be to undertake a totally new project when you've already had some or, or a lot of success in a prior career, in a prior endeavor. But of that success, everybody is now completely ignorant and by and large indifferent because now you have to prove your competence in a totally new field. So early on, although you did have this long-standing passion with missiles and rockets, did you ever feel like this maybe was too challenging and, and unworthy of your effort? No, but as you mentioned, it was very humbling and it was demoralizing in the beginning because there's three major agencies out there. There's NASA, SpaceX, and ULA. Well, actually in a fourth one in the 45th space wing, they all are involved in their own credentialing. And when you start getting for a year and a half, when you were a media photographer and you've been in victory lane over a hundred times at IndyCar races, NASCAR races, and thought you were good enough to be a media photographer out at the Cape, it's humbling for a year and a half to get nothing but no, 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 and the doors just keep slamming. Um, never did have a thought about giving up because I'm pretty hard-headed and I am competitive. But I also feel if you are gonna change your life and you can do that at any age, at any age, whether you're 15 or 68, you can change your life and flip it upside down, but you better be you better be dedicated. You better have passion. If you have those two ingredients, if it's in your heart, you're not going to give up on it. And thankfully, I got my first door to open, which was the 45th Space Wing, a year and a half later. So what I had to do is I had to prove myself. I had to go out and shoot with the general public 
eight miles away from the launch pad, 12 miles, and they're and you're in a mass, you're in a crowd, and they're bumping you and hitting your camera and bumping into the tripod leg. It's a whole nother world. It can be very hectic when you're in a crowd of 100, 200, 1,000 people. And, and, these, and let me just interrupt. These are observers, lay people, as well as perhaps uh, aspiring photographers? Yes, so, all, of, all of the above. Yeah, um, so, know, the, so these are people you know, among whom you're, you're jostling for a position. Uh, you know, and they might just be a family out to see the the rocket launch. So, exactly. I yeah, I can understand how how difficult and humbling that can be to be in this and they're, in the and they're, as you're trying to be a professional. And they're excited, and they're and especially the children, and they want to, and they're asking you a thousand questions, and it's five seconds to lift off, and you need to be on your camera, focused, and really engaged. So there can be a lot of distractions when you're shooting with the general public. But that is what how how most of us have had to do it to break in to the media core is we had to shoot with the general public first and you have to go through that and you just have to learn that then you start getting your pictures published by an editor to build the portfolio and then once you have the portfolio you have something to show to the 45th space wing to nasa or to spacex and that is how those doors start to open yeah i think that progression goes generally underappreciated and again, it, I think that goes back to the ubiquity of our cell phones and how easily I can lift up my my camera, my cell phone camera, and take a, a gorgeous picture and think nothing of it. Uh, but the process that you and fellow photographers are made to go through is, is a grueling one. It's a daunting one. I think of musicians similarly. You know, I've just finished reading a couple of biographies written by uh, Alan Alan Paul, whom I hope to have on this channel soon, and. Uh, you know, he writes about Stevie Ray Vaughan and the Allman Brothers and the fact that they spent so many years making a pittance, playing at these <laughs> dilapidated bars and clubs down in, in around Florida and Georgia and Texas, um, trying to establish a sound. Now, in your case, you're trying to establish a site, trying to establish a certain perspective and a, and a sort of a trademark style, just as they were trying to establish their sound. Uh, so, it, again, it's it's difficult to to do that, not only to do that, to hone your craft, but then to, to encounter rejection and rejection and rejection over and over again throughout the course of a year or maybe two years. But it really speaks to your fortitude and your patience um, and that inner drive that I think is, is, is fallen a little bit feeble, I think, in our, in our present generation, or at least the generation of which I'm a part. You know, that instant gratification isn't always going to be there. So you really do need to put in the time. And I find your story just so inspiring and remarkable. And I noted this uh, the first time that we spoke uh, months ago, you know, this, this daring pivot at an, at an older age, not an old age by any stretch these days, but at an, uh, at an older age. And uh, the fact that you were able to commit yourself entirely to this new project for which you always sort of had a latent passion and then succeed in it, just is so, so inspiring. So again, I thank you for, for laying that out. Uh, I wrote a note here and you sort of touched on it, but you know, so many of us have side projects. Yours truly, you're looking at one right now. You're being featured on one as a matter of fact. And you know, these are things that, that maybe are the only parts of the, their day to which they look forward. Maybe it's the reason they get up out of, out of bed in the morning and, and rush home from their day job to do this. Um, now you were 
retired when you began photo uh, photography for the, the space expeditions and for the rocket launches. But for people who are maybe juggling a passion or a side project in a, in a full-time job uh, that they need to pay the bills, to what, you know, what would you say to, these, to, the, to, the, to this class of people? Um, how do you strike this balance and how do you not lose heart uh, in the, the project that really inspires your passion, but perhaps isn't as uh, remunerative? Um, I, you know, it's another very good question. And I think the, what you can do when you have responsibilities of family, job, career, children, um, you can still on those off times, you can still go out there and begin to hone those skills. And whether it's fiberglassing boats and designing a brand new boat that maybe you've been thinking about for 20 or 30 years. I just met that person yesterday as we're changing out a refrigerator in an owner's apartment. And I just, again, a young, passionate young man. And you could tell it's in his heart. I could tell he's, he's gonna do it. He's got a lot of problems and a lot of complications ahead of him, but to build a brand new boat and compete with the amount of brands that are out there, but it's in his heart. And that's what I stepped back and I could see a little bit of myself in him. And I just kept applauding him and letting him know, go for it. You can do this. You've got it. You've, you've gotten the hard part down already is you've taken that first step. So no matter if you're distracted with careers and jobs and family, you still have the weekend, you still have evening, you do need to go and study and learn and, and get the foundation of whatever direction or whatever interest you have. Learn that though, because there are, there's so much to learn. And now we have it at our fingertips with the internet and in so many other avenues besides books, but learn that first, go out and start experiencing it. And that's when you're gonna find out that that is the direction that maybe is calling you. That is the, the calling that you should be chasing after when it's possible, when the right part of life comes, then you'll know to make that decision. But I still think everyone, whether it's baseball, sports, uh, fiberglassing a boat uh, or photography, you can still go out and start practicing that now. And I really think um, it's one of the best things to do. And something that I've learned in my own experience is that uh, you often do have the time. Uh, we like to think that we don't. And, and in some instances, you, you truly do not have the time to spare. But if you accumulate in your mind all those idle moments throughout the course of a day, uh, when you're either scrolling through your phone or watching television or doing whatever, and, and not really committing your mind to what it is you want to achieve, and those are wasted moments, I think. And as I said, when you gather them up together at the end of the week, they could amount to hours, maybe even full days. <laughs> so that's something that I've recognized in my own uh, structuring of my day and of my life and of uh, you know these projects upon which I need to improve personally. So so thank you for that for that comment because I think it really resonates not only with me but for everybody else listening who might have that side project. Uh, that they want to succeed in. Now, I want to pick up on one word that you said, and that's chasing. We did just have a storm, Hurricane Idalia, who swept her way up through the, the big bend of Florida, sort of between Tampa and Tallahassee, where that concavity begins to merge into the, the panhandle. Uh, you are 
storm chaser, as I mentioned uh, earlier, and perhaps that's not the main thing for which you're known right now. And I, I think that's probably your, your rocket photography. But can you tell us a little bit about about that? <laughs> what is it like to be a, a photographer of these these terrorizing storms? It is uh, also life-changing and incredibly humbling because when you're out in the Great Plains chasing a supercell or sometimes multiple supercells, and they are so huge. They are so big and they are so powerful. And for those of us unacquainted with that term, what exactly is a supercell? So a supercell is a rotating thunderstorm. Uh, we have thunderstorms, of, cor of, cor of course, here in Florida often, but most of the time they are not rotating. So a rotating thunderstorm with that left spin or right spin, and they can be cyclonic or anti-cyclonic, um, that is a supercell. They are normally on steroids. They are 60,000 foot tops. Uh, normally we're in the 40 to 50,000 foot range here in Florida. Uh, the lightning is incredible. Um, they normally happen around sunset. It's, it's just strange. Now, of course, there's all sorts of variations depending on when cold fronts come in and mix with the warm front. But there's so much volatility with the Gulf moisture coming up, the, the cold fronts coming down, and they meet in the Great Plains. And it's, it's one of the most amazing places in the entire world to have all of these components come to, together to create these supercell storms but they are incredibly dangerous and they're and the adrenaline flow from that is amazing. So yes, I have to admit I'm an adventure photographer. Um, I love lightning even more than the supercells or hurricanes, but lightning is my number one favorite, but supercells are, are definitely number two. Hurricanes are number three or number four, only because they're so big and they're so messy, it's hard to get really captivating photos unless you really are going to risk your vehicle and get right in the storm surge in a strange place that you know nothing about if it's not happening in your own backyard and you really better better do your homework about storm surge elevation because you're probably going to lose your vehicle and a lot of storm chasers i know they have lost their vehicles multiple times yeah. uh, but the images they capture are incredible but it is highly dangerous it is more dangerous than rocket launch photography. Oh, I would think un undoubtedly. I suppose one of the advantages of a hurricane is the rapidity with which it moves. You know, it's easier probably to set up and to prepare. You know almost weeks in advance kind of the trajectory and, and where it will probably land. Whereas with these these other lightning storms, I, I would assume that they are very fast moving and, and very violent. And, and forceful, but but fugacious. They come and they go very quickly. Now, tell me, during what season are these um, supercells normally forming on the Great Plains? Is that in the summertime? Yes, it is. So April, all the way. In fact, you know, you can have tornadoes and supercells even in in winter with the right cold front and the white and the right warm front coming and intersecting. But the uh, the peak of, of Tornado Alley and of tornadoes and supercells out in the Great Plains, April, May, and June. Those are the three biggest months. Um, and that is when they're at their strongest, they're ferocious, and normally you, you're, you're having them come at you at pretty good intervals. There may be a two or three day, like with any storm, there will be a lull. 
and it, and the environment and the atmosphere has to recharge and regenerate just like with lightning. Uh, there's a timing to lightning when you really start going after it. Um, like how a flash has to recharge again before it can go off. Same principle with lightning. But with the thunderstorms and the supercells, um, April, May, and June, is that's when all the ingredients, the right, and, and there are about seven ingredients you really, really need for a tornado. And they're super hard to pinpoint, super hard to predict. And, and even the meteorologists, severe meteorologists, um, who have done this most of their life, they really struggle when they're looking at a map of Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, where do I go uh, one day, six hours, eight hours in advance? You've got to be able to get in, in, in the proper location to now begin to chase them because when they form, they're moving about 30, 40 miles an hour. And that's almost impossible to keep up with um, when you're trying to track them. And the trick is you stay on the northeast quadrant of that storm. You have to stay ahead of it. So if it's going northeast, you have to stay in that northeast quadrant and you have to stay out of the hail core. The hail core with four inch hail and three inch hail can be as violent and scary as a tornado. And That's a hail, is, I'm sorry, a hail core or a hell well, core? <laughs> a hail, H-A-I-L, hail, hail core, core. Although I suppose hail, both words. The size of softballs or of footballs. I've seen some size of footballs. And then when they come and hit your car, you're in a lot of trouble. Uh, you're losing your windshield, your mirrors, your roof, your hood, your light. head. <laughs> your head. I, I have a helmet. I chase with a helmet Good. when I when I cannot escape a, a hail core. Sometimes you're focusing on one supercell that's in front of you, trying to stay ahead of it, and you don't see the one that's coming up behind, and that's the one that clobbers you. So you have to be prepared in so many different ways. It's it's incredibly exhilarating. Uh, it's very dangerous, but I love the adrenaline. And now, is there a specific type of life insurance that one takes out to be able to do this more more securely? <laughs> well, no. In fact, um, you have to actually be very careful about doing this because you could actually hurt your life insurance policies. If you are intentionally putting yourself at risk, nobody wants to insure that. And that's the same with car insurance. So you may lose your car, both in a hurricane and with hail and in a tornado, right? But if they find out that you were purposely chasing that storm, guess what? Uh, they're going to deny your claim. Which, Scott, you most certainly were not, just in case any of the Allstate agents down in Southwest Florida are listening to this episode. <laughs> I, can attest, I can attest to your good reason and your sound mind that you would never put yourself willingly and knowingly at risk. <laughs> I appreciate that. Of course. Well, given your penchant to... Um, well, to be in the midst of danger, let's say, perhaps negating my last comment to the Allstate folks out there. I have to ask, to what do you attribute this this sort of uh, lust for for adventure, this this uh, this need to have that adrenaline spike? Were you always like this? Did this come upon you later in life? What's the what's the reason behind this? I have been a very conservative individual for most of my life. And I think it's reasonable when you are raising a family. You, you need to be that way. And you should be a, a model of consistency and not a craziness. 
However, but as the years go on and you see the clock coming down and you see your hair change color from brown to gray to now white, um, you know time is running out. And to, I want to live life all the way to my very last breath. And these are the three areas that I have been able to really feel being that amount of, of, of being alive to the fullest. And that is in auto racing when a car is wrecking and coming right at you and all you have is the guardrail to drop down behind and the pieces and tires and car is flying over you or with lightning or with tornadoes. Those three, or supercells, those three, just um, you come back and you're so energized, you feel alive and you know you, 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 know you were a part of nature that was just incredible. You're a fascinating individual because there's a there's almost a disharmony between your mild-manneredness, the way in which you're so measured and thoughtful and thorough, and like you said, consistent and conservative. I don't mean politically, but but you know, characteristically, and then this other side of you, which is adventure-seeking and daring and undaunted. And I always love that about people. And that's why I love to have these conversations. It's, it's to find these things out, to ascertain these hidden um, inconsistencies in people's characters that are, that are so so enlightening and so fascinating. Um, so you never pursued any anything like skydiving or anything like deep sea fishing or, or, or diving or anything like that. It was, you, you really like to be there in the, in the middle of things, but as a, I don't know, almost as though you're a, you're a voyeur, you're, you know, you're, you're taking photographs, but also with a foot in the action, you know, there's only that guardrail separating you and the vehicle. There's, there's only that windshield separating you from that, from that hailstorm. So maybe there still is a little bit of that conservatism at play when you're really immersing your, almost fully immersing yourself into these dangerous events. Do you ever reflect on that? How you're sort of like, you're, you're with a toe into the, into the real danger, but you're not fully immersed in it. You are right. Um, in fact, uh, we just had a conversation over lunch with some of my, my colleagues out of Cape Canaveral. Half of them have skydived, half of them have not. I have not been interested in doing that, uh, except if, if I did do it, I would love to have a GoPro on my helmet just to capture that whole adventure. But you're right, I have not pushed to the limit of that. And deep sea diving, no, because of sharks. I'm not in control. I. You know, I just, that's just, I'm, that's really being out of my element. So you're, you're absolutely right. I've picked the areas that I feel I can control somewhat and I have enough knowledge about to try to keep me safe, but I'm right on that edge, but I haven't gone over that edge. So you, <laughs> you hit the nail right on the head. Not yet, at least. <laughs> as you <laughs> said, the, as you age, it sounds like the, the, the more um, audacious you become, the more daring you, you become with age. <laughs> Time, time is running out. <laughs> <There's, yeah. laughs> uh, um, I, I can't refrain from asking you as a storm chaser about uh, all the debate, let's say, around climate change and global warming. Um, now, I don't mean to pose this in order to elicit a sort of a political response in any regard, but is that a conversation that's common? Maybe not in your own mind, but maybe amongst your colleagues who are also storm chasers, is it is it a concern of theirs that perhaps because of you know CO two emissions that supercells that may have been 
more subdued 10 or 20 years ago are now more fearsome or same thing with tornadoes? Are they moving at a, at a faster rate because of uh, anthropogenic global warming? Maybe you can give me either your thoughts on this or like the general consensus in the storm chasing community. I'd be, I'd be happy to. And again, excellent question. Um, without a doubt, my personal opinion, um, it doesn't matter whether you're Republican, Democrat, it really truly doesn't. There's enough evidence out there that global warming has really become a problem. And we used to think it was going to be in our children's lifetime, but no, it's happening now. We had 101 degree water temperature down at the Keys, um, and they're killing the coral reefs, that temperature. Um, that was a record-breaking 101 degree. For the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, you never heard of rapid intensification on a hurricane. But now that's on every hurricane. You'll hear that. And it's happening. Rapid intensification is, I think, a 30-mile-an-hour increase in a 24-hour period. And that's not even what's happening. They're going from Cat 1 to Cat 4 or Cat 5 in 24 hours. That's a lot more than 30 miles an hour change. But out west, the intensity of the storms, the amount, the, a, a Cat, um, a Torcon 5 or, or a, a, you know, a, 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 a tornado that was Cat 5 was rare. And 3s and 4s were semi-rare. And normally there were uh, zeros, ones, or twos. Well, that's changed. We're having the intensification level is so much more higher, even on tornadoes. The melting of the icebergs. Glacier National, when I went to Glacier National a few years ago, just on vacation, they used to have a hundred glaciers up there in that national park. They're down to three. That's sad. That's just ex extremely sad. So another part about why SpaceX is so amazing. And, and when people see a rocket launch and they see the cloud, they think, oh, look at the pollution. You know, that's steam. They, we, we use water, a deluge of water that shoots around the rocket to knock the sound and vibration down that bounces off and could hurt that rocket. That sound could liquefy your organs. If you were in the first mile, it could actually kill you, just that vibration. So we use water, a huge deluge of water to, and that flame with that water creates steam. And what they see most at liftoff down on the pad is not pollution, but it's water and heat and steam. Uh, yes, there are chemicals that are involved on for the rest of the flight, but it's very microscopic regarding its effect on, on mother earth. But what we are doing as humans with fossil fuels, uh, non-electric vehicles, um, lack of recycling, all of it. Um, we, it's important. We have to change. We need to be better stewards of this planet um, because this is our spaceship. Earth is our spaceship. This is our journey, our ship that we're on as we're going through our solar system 365 days a year, making an individual round trip every year on our birthdays, whatever anniversaries, whatever you want to target, um, we're, we're on a spaceship and that is the, and we have to take care of this spaceship and that is mother earth. Sounds a little bit like a David Bowie song, but you're absolutely right. You nailed it. Uh, the fact that we need to be better stewards. And I, I don't think anybody 
when they really think about it, for, you know, detached from a political perspective, whatever it may be, I don't think anybody really, and at least in America, would, would, would disagree with that. Of course, I could easily be proven wrong. <laughs> you can knock yeah, on your next door you know, neighbor's door and probably find somebody who might. Um, but I think that sentiment is, is, if not universally shared, then generally shared, that, that we need to be better stewards of this, of this country uh, and of this world on which we live. One image that, that happens to me as I'm driving, I, I take a long way around to get to Cape Canaveral. So it's a 10 hour round trip, five hours one way, just to go down Alligator Alley, go to Miami, get on 75, go north. But on 75, when you get out of West Palm Beach, there are mountains, there's two mountains. One is on the right side of 75 northbound, one is on the left, and they are landfills. They are huge. And I, every time I drive, and there one of them, I know exactly then how many more minutes I have to get to get to Cape Kennedy when I pass either one of these two landfills. But they are mountains. It is amazing how tall they are, and you see the bulldozers up on the top, continuing to just add more and more garbage and refuse. It's incredible what we're producing. Yeah, that's disheartening. Uh, though it is probably the highest elevation in Florida if it's going to be counted. <laughs> and and uh, there is some ambivalence though in my mind because uh, though that is lamentable, it also is a sign of, for better or worse, civilization. Uh, you know, this is a, this particularly is a state that is experiencing uh, an unprecedented period of growth. And a consequence of that is you know, the erection of new condominiums and you know, the development of new housing um, um, sectors, which means that you need to knock down all the trees and you need to you know, raise all the, all the bushes and the shrubbery and exile all the animals. <laughs> and that's unfortunate, but also it means you know, the, the ability for, let's say, a new family of four who are discontented with their lives in Minnesota, let's say, to, to come down here and to live here. Um, so, so there is a sense in my heart of, of ambivalence. And I know we, we, we can do better and we must do better. And I think we shall do better. But, but um, right now, like you said, it is disheartening to see the way in which we, we have been somewhat um, maladroit in our handling of, of the environment. Speaking to that ambivalence, and I say this a little bit mischievously, so you have to forgive me, but as a storm chaser, in some ways, do you quietly not endorse the effects of climate change and the strengthening of these storms, but, but maybe smile a little bit, knowing that you're going to get <laughs> more opportunities for <laughs> hurricanes and, <laughs> and tornadoes and uh, these dazzling displays of supercells? And you can be honest with me. Do you feel, you know, a little bit of gratitude toward toward the uh, toward the global warming phenomenon? <laughs> Actually, I, I have not. Um, that I and I haven't even thought about that. To be honest with you, that what we're doing is creating stronger storms. Um, you know, rapidly intensifying storms. That's a. I actually have. I've put that in the back of my mind, and I've not. <laughs> Not really thought about that. It's job, it's job security. <laughs> it's a little bit. It, it is. It, it is. You are right on that. Um, it, it is interesting. Very few people will chase a storm with an electric car because, 
you when you're chasing and you have and you're surrounded by supercells, it's not just one. Normally there's a, a band, a row of them, or they're just constantly popping up all around you. But fuel is a major issue when you're chasing. And there's a rule of thumb is when you get to three o'clock, you fill up your car because from three to midnight is when everything just blows up, especially out west um, in the summertime. So knowing where the next gas station is and which is carbon fuels, right? Which we're using uh, to go chase. Um, it's vital for you just to make sure that you can escape and that you can get away. So very rarely do you ever see an electric vehicle out there chasing because you know you have to sit and it's the most beneficial thing. It's good for our environment. It's better than what we're doing with fossil fuels, but the time to sit there and recharge um, doesn't bode well for storm chasing. So you're right. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm contributing to that problem, even though I, I am chasing those storms. Uh, that is a that is a dichotomy. Well, I'll let you uh, resolve that uh, off camera on your <laughs> on your own. <laughs> um, Thank you. Let's uh, let's jump back to SpaceX. Now you mentioned that in passing, and of course you're. Your shirt, your shirt uh, is emblazoned with the, the logo, SpaceX. I think it has become very quickly one of the companies of which Americans are most proud. We seem to really feel a deep connection to that. And I think it's because it has taken the place that that NASA once served. Of course, they NASA still is an extant operation, government operation, and it obviously is instrumental in 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 sending these these uh, rockets up into space and our satellites into orbit and things like that. Uh, but SpaceX has really become synonymous with the next chapter of space exploration. So I'm just a fanboy and and sort of a distant one at that. I you know I, I adore the companies like Tesla and SpaceX of which we made mention um, earlier off camera. Uh, and most anything that Elon Musk touches, and, and this is again always to, to uncouple sort of any of his uh, eccentricities and his political predilections from what he's done as an entrepreneur and as a scientist um, and as an innovator. Uh, but maybe tell us a little bit about your perspective toward SpaceX, maybe when you learned about this company, how it gripped you, and how it sustained your, your adoration. I, I would love to. To be honest with you, the team at SpaceX is amazing. The dedication, the sacrifices that they are going through, um, the workload that they have and the cadence on how they're launching rockets one a week almost. Um, they just had a launch at Vandenberg um, uh, today and that is their 61st Falcon launch in this year. Uh, we're going to have a launch, I believe, uh, tomorrow or in two days from Cape Canaveral for Starlink. Um, by the way, that's another amazing product. Look what it's doing to um, to devastation into areas that are devastated by natural disasters. And they can come in and bring in Starlink and bring back inter internet and connectivity to communities that have been really hurt by natural disasters. Or, another, or, or hurt or, and or devastated or by, by warfare as well. And warfare like Ukraine, absolutely. So another side benefit there. 
But that team is amazing. Not one out of all the rocket launch companies in the world, no one is landing a booster back on a drone ship or on ground. There's only a few that are splashing down in an ocean and hauling them back. And then a lot of refur refurbishment has to take place. But Elon and his team, it's amazing what they have done. They are, dis they are an industry disruptor. They have disrupted, brought down the cost of rocket launches, which has raised the accessibility to foreign countries and to foreign governments, to regions to launch their own satellite. Colleges are now building satellites all across the United States and we're flying them on SpaceX launches or on NASA launches. So it's just amazing to see the colleges involved and they have their own satellite by um, Clemson or by University of Connecticut. It's just, it's just amazing to see that and to then talk to those students is also another awe-inspiring part of the job to see their enthusiasm and to see their beliefs in the future. But SpaceX is incredible. I mean, they are doing so many 61 launches. Next, tomorrow will be, it will match their cadence last year of 62 launches for the whole year. And this is now only September and they've already matched what it took a whole year to do last year. So I do believe eventually he is gonna finally get to Mars. That is his driving force to be multi-planetary. That is the main reason why he always started uh, SpaceX. And if you read his story about his three rocket failures, he had enough money left over. He was ready to quit. And people were telling him, that's it, you're done. And he had three failures back to back, but he had enough spare parts to put a fourth one together. And that one did reach orbit. And that is, and if it wasn't for that fourth and final rocket um, of a Falcon 1, we never would be doing what we're doing now. Now they've flown almost 42 humans to the International Space Station. Uh, we haven't had space shuttle when NASA uh, shut that down. We haven't been back to the moon in 50 years. We haven't been, the shuttle last shuttle, I think it was two, 2019. And now they've flown 42 humans to the International Space Station and four civilians, that, in, that inspiration for, um, even though it was one billionaire, but it was three normal citizens with average jobs, including the work that they're doing for St. Jude Hospital, which is terrific on raising funds. And he's still, Jarek Eisenman is still raising funds for St. Jude with the new Polaris program that he's doing. But NASA, without NASA, SpaceX also wouldn't have occurred because NASA gave them that funding to, to start and build the Falcon 9, which is now in the Dragon capsules, which is flying their astronauts. Um, so NASA and SpaceX have been joined together. They have been, they both need each other. Um, but what they both have done together is excellent. Now NASA has joined with SpaceX because the Starship launch, which blew up my cameras uh, back in April 20th of this year um, on its first test flight, that is gonna be the lunar lander for Artemis III, first woman on the moon, first man of color for Artemis III. Um, that is that might get pushed back a, a couple more years because Starship hasn't gotten off to a terrific start yet. But that is the lunar lander of the NASA program that will hook up with Artemis 3 and will be the instrument to take those, those 
humans back to the moon. So I can't wait to be a part of that and to document that. And, and we can't wait to, to see your documentation and, and the fruits of your labor. Uh, you don't hold any grudges, do you, toward the, toward the spaceship for having damaged your $40,000 worth of equipment? Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, I, honestly, that was the most exciting, exhilarating launch and was my darkest launch afterwards. Um, I have never photographed a rocket that has blown up. That was my first. And I never had a rocket ever blow my cameras up. That was a first. But when I saw the video, it was exhilarating going through that launch and seeing it. And then slightly disheartening when it couldn't reach orbit and they had to terminate it over the Gulf of Mexico off of the coast of Texas. But when I saw within 15 minutes, we started seeing the video of boulders coming at 100 miles an hour through the area that SpaceX had allotted us to shoot the Starship test flight. And it was just wiped, it, woke, it wiped out vans. There were vans that had all sorts of satellite dishes to live stream and it just destroyed those vans and those vehicles. And our cameras were all in front of those vehicles. And there were about only 35, 40 of us that were allowed out there, probably 100, 110 cameras and they were mowed down like machine guns uh, by, here's part of the launch pad. This oh. is 16 million pounds of thrust, most powerful rocket, tallest rocket in the world, most powerful rocket to ever launch. But Elon thought that the concrete launch pad could handle one more attempt before he built this this somewhat like a showerhead, an ironclad showerhead that shoots water up like a showerhead instead of vertically down to, to handle that, that vibration and that sound. And he was wrong. The pad didn't handle it. He admitted it created a rock tornado. This, this was his own term. He called this a rock tornado. And but were you were you unscathed? Did you walk away? I, we were unscathed because we were not allowed to be out there. It was so it's so dangerous. So we were over. I was over at least four miles away at South Padre Island, shooting from a hotel remotely. over to, yeah, remotely, remotely over uh -huh. to Boca Chica. So my cameras were both inside the launch pad and outside the launch pad, and it's amazing the destruction that happened in both locations. But these coming at a hundred miles an hour into camera equipment, video equipment, cars, vehicles, vans, Starlink, receiver dishes. It just wiped a lot of it out. Uh, there were a few people who came unscathed. I lost um, everything but one camera. I have one working camera from that, uh, but everything, tripods, sound triggers, dew heaters, batteries, um, lenses, even the boxes that I built to try to handle something like that all failed. Oh. Uh, so it, it was a dark moment when I realized I probably lost everything out there. So that launch was the epitome of both the highs of highs and the low of lows. And we, it took us three days before SpaceX even allowed us to come back to retrieve our equipment. And we're very thankful for them. The public affairs officers, uh, they did amazing to go look for our pieces our, our cameras were blown up and scattered everywhere. And, and we have identification, but only in one spot on the camera. And when it's in three, five, 20 pieces, you're not gonna get all of it back. 
but they worked, they really worked hard to try to find all of media's cameras. It was a painstaking job for them and they had to be safe while they did that because the pad was pretty damaged also. But they mailed us our cameras back about a month later and that's when I got my pieces. And But I did get an SD card. I got pic photos of the liftoff. Um, I'm one of only three that was able to get the liftoff photos from inside the launch pad. And I'm the only photographer that has a working camera that survived the inside of the launch pad. So it was, it was incredible, but it was, <clears throat> I've never gone through that type of damage before. Yeah, it's a distinction of which you should be proud. The fact that you walked away at least with a little bit <laughs> intact. <laughs> I agree. Uh, you, you did say something, though, that I thought was worth lingering on just for a second. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows. I think that's such an apt summation of this, this industry, this entire project. What are we doing? We're sending rockets up into the unknown, you know, the, the unknown heavens and occasionally fall down into the deepest abysses. So it's, it's, it is the highest of highs and the lowest of lows emotionally, but also physically. So it, it's a really apt summation, like I said, of, of what that endeavor is. Another thing I just want to point out, and, and maybe it's just for, you know, for my listenership or my viewership uh, to, to take note of, and, and that is NASA hasn't been supplanted by SpaceX. I think that often is a little bit of a confusion just because the, the SpaceX name is now so prominent and rightfully so. But no, like this, the two still do work in tandem and, and it's a mutually beneficial relationship um, in every conceivable way. And the last thing I wanted to, to ask you if, is if you feel as though you might resonate a little bit with Elon Musk over the fact that you both are admittedly, in your case, a bit hard-headed. <laughs> you mentioned that earlier. You have this kind of, um, oh, I don't know, irrepressible spirit uh, and this fortitude to continue to persist and to succeed. And Elon certainly has that. Uh, now, you might not share his billions of, of dollars, <laughs> but uh, but there is something maybe similar in your personalities. Do you feel as though there is a connection there? And maybe for that reason, you... you extol him in a in a certain sense i i do have the utmost respect for 80 percent of what he's done and and who he is uh, but none of us are perfect and we all have like you had said our idiosyncrasies uh, but he's a he's a genius he's brilliant i am not i'm an average person uh but to have his vision to have the fortitude and look what he, I cannot imagine the pressure that he is on every single day. And he has to perform and the company has to perform or NASA and Congress will stop funding uh, some of these bilateral projects that they, as you mentioned, that they are both on, including going back to the moon. They are both heavily involved in this now together. They both need each other. So we need both segments NASA and SpaceX to survive and to um, and to win, but his vision is stunning, and his and his genius is. I'm in awe of that, and I get to see pieces of this firsthand on what his team. Now it's not just Elon; he has an amazing, talented group of people uh, that are both at Tesla and at SpaceX and at the Boring Company. Uh, which is a whole nother 
adventure um, that we probably should continue to to do. Um, but but you know, t- buying Twitter, some of his statements on Twitter, things like that. That's different. You know, that's a whole segment. But I'll tell you, he has been a visionary. He has really changed the direction of America. And you're right. You've mentioned about how proud we are. There's a sense of of um, fulfillment now that we're finally striving again. We're achieving. We're we're exploring. Um, NASA had that back in the '60s and the '70s, and it's back. And it's palatable when you go out to Cape Kennedy. The excitement of not only the observers and the civilians, but the people who are working out there and the dedication. It, it that you can see that step that they have and that sense of pride in their chest and it's palatable and it's um it's uh, intoxicating it really is it's addicting and it's intoxicating and elon's done that um yes certain sec- sections of nasa has done that also with the lunar the 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 mars rover landers um lucy the satellite that nasa launched to to the Trojan asteroids. That was my only clean room that I've been able to go into with the bunny suit and just an incredible experience to see it before it goes on a seven year journey to outer space, to Jupiter, to study these amazing asteroids. So NASA has been, and the, the James Webb telescope, what it had a hundred and, I'm gonna misquote this, but 163 points of failure as it would unfold and every one of them worked and it's in the images, which I'm sure you've seen, are just incredible. So NASA has had so many historic moments this year and last year, and so has SpaceX. And I, I'm positive they'll eventually get Starship going. It might delay things a little bit by a few years. But with both of these entities, I really do think that we have a positivity. I think we are inspiring the younger generation. That's another role that I hope I have with my photos, my image, as John Krause did as a 15-year-old with just a few of his images. I hope we continue to get more young people involved in space, engineering, mathematics, science, physics, uh, the STEM. Uh, uh, I, we need the young minds. We need the new Elon Musk. Who out there is going to be the new Elon and take us to another level? That's what this is all about. Scott, that's an absolutely beautiful sentiment on which I fear I simply cannot improve. You're you're absolutely right. The symbiosis between NASA, our government, and SpaceX, led by Elon Musk, but of course operated by a multitude of very talented people, is one of the great displays of our country's ability and genius and perseverance. I think that I can recall, perhaps you can think of some greater having lived longer than I, but to my mind, it's, it's really uh, one of the great achievements of, of America. And in the midst of all our bleakness <laughs> and all of our despair and all of our uh, misgivings about the future, mainly in the political sphere, it's so refreshing to hear you talk with such enthusiasm about what we are doing and what I think we will achieve in the near future. So again, thank you so much. This has just been incredibly inspiring as well as informative. And I think this is probably a, a good place or as good as any to, to begin to wind up and, 
and uh, bid adieu. So let me leave the floor open to you. I don't think that there's anything else that you can say to inspire us more. Um, maybe you can share with us a final thought or two and the social media platforms on which you can most readily be found, whether they be Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, or, or maybe a personal website. Sure, I'd love to. Number one, it's been a pleasure to meet you and get to know you. And there was a connection from the very first time uh, we saw each other. And uh, that means a lot to me because I do, I do live vicariously through the younger generation because you're the future and I am not. But my one statement that I would love to make to your audience is never, ever give up on your dreams. Continue to push, no matter how hard, no matter how bleak, no matter how many no's you get, please do not give up on your dreams. To the social platforms, um, on Twitter, it's Shelky Scott. So it's the at symbol, Shelky Scott. On Facebook, it's just Scott Shelke, uh, friend me. Um, I'd love to be able to hit the, the friend button on that. Um, and unfortunately, my editor of 11 years for uh, spacenews.lu and automobilesport.com recently, in the first week of July, which was another bad week for me for an, a different reason, family-wise, passed away from her third battle with cancer. So those websites now are frozen and we're trying to get the computer and the codes to go and revitalize those and keep them going in her memory and Maggie Perez uh, memory. So unfortunately I haven't had an editor since July. That has caused me to enter a new world now of getting my own web page going. And it is gonna be spacenewsfl.com. Now, if you go onto that now, there's just a temporary page with the logo, but we're close. Every week I keep thinking, all right, I can start posting my articles. I'm gonna go back to when Maggie passed, which is in the first week of July and post all the launches that I've covered since then. So, um, but I think we're just a week away from getting that going. So spacenewsfl.com. And that's something to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. I have to ask though, in that emblem of yours, are you planning to incorporate that magical image of the missile that first led you on this journey? It is, it is front and center. In fact, the rocket is the biggest part. It's bigger than the words, um, but the rocket is the biggest part of that logo. And I'm sorry, I mean, I mean that missile that was photographed when you were very young, that your father showed you, that your brother now possesses. Right. I would love to get that photo. Uh, <laughs> I would love to get that photo. Maybe you can digitize. Maybe you can digitize that and somehow incorporate that into your logo. I would, I would love to see that. I think that would truly be poetic. That's a great <laughs> idea. That's a great idea. I think so. So, Scott, this has just been a joy. Um, my first experience with you, of course, was was memorable to say the very least. And and this opportunity to to expand on, uh, well, for me to hear you expand on your passions and your, your achievements and for you to give this excellent advice to not only myself, but to all of us in the, the younger generation, as you call it, 
um, has been invaluable. So again, I will include links to all of your social media pages and your fledgling website in my show notes. I encourage everybody to, to take a look. At the very least, check out the Instagram page. It's a wonder. Uh, you can just be scrolling um, and looking at these beautiful, exhilarating images for hours. You almost feel as though you're there. Uh, a little bit more safely removed <laughs> and without the risk of any concrete flying at your head. <laughs> um, and I have to thank you for for just being a model, being a great model uh, of of transformation, of evolution, of of adapting yourself and committing yourself to to great things. So, of course, everybody, I encourage you subscribe to this channel, subscribe to to uh, Scott's content, or follow it, or add it to your to your pages. And that's about all I have to say. Thank you so very much for listening. And I bid you all farewell from Finneran's Wake.